Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson. What are you thankful for this morning? Ah, oh, let's see. <laughs> Guess what I'm thankful for? What, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful I'm half a prophet. What do you mean? I'm half a prophet. What is that? What does that even mean? Well, see, two weeks ago, I said it was going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. Yes. So we're 14 days in. The 10-day forecast has 10 days of rain ahead of us. Uh-huh. That means that I'll be halfway there. Yep. Okay. I'm half a prophet. It, it's really been 14 days of raining. Yes. Surely. It's been well, like it's, a week. It's, it's been a week. It yeah, hasn't been two weeks. It's been, it's been one two. week. Check it out. It's been two. Man. It's been really? I, th- I think I've just assimilated. It hasn't rained all the time, but it's rained on every day in the last two weeks. Yeah. I was like... Good it, good, good weather for ducks. I'm like looking we, outside, we and today's probably the worst of it, to be honest. Dude, there was it a lightning strike this morning. There. Yeah. there was a lightning strike that legit, like... We heard fl- it here. I f- it flashed at, outside of my window. Like, it was like... And it was like up the street from me. I'm, I'm, Hit a tree or something. I'm I'm thankful for lightning most of the time. Why is that? Because without lightning, you wouldn't have no thunder, and thunder is awesome. That's true. So I'm thankful uh-huh. for it most of the time. Uh-huh. I'm not thankful for it when it breaks stuff. Totally. Have you ever been in a house that's been struck by lightning? No. I have. I've been in a house where a tree beside the house got struck by lightning okay. and caught fire. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Dude, um, my house, during during like Pashabolka, um, were you here that? No, you weren't in Newcastle at that time. No, so that, this was, is, that was this going is the, back away. The June, the June storms in 2007, our house got struck by lightning. Luckily, there was like a surge protector on the box and like we just, yeah, changed the fuses and then plugged the house into a generator and we still had power, which was good. But uh, yeah, dude, our house got struck by lightning and it was insane. It's like <laughs> so loud. Nuts. The whole house was I shaking. love a good thunderstorm. It is just awe-inspiring. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. There you go. Okay. All right. If you know the answer, then let's go there. Give us a call. Lawson, uh, what have we got in positively different news this morning? Brighten Brighten our lives this morning. Norwegians have done something. That's cool. It's always cool when Norwegians do something. Norwegians have done something cool. It's it's normally cool when Norwegians do something. Norwegians have successfully launched the first electric autonomous container ship. Ooh. Yes. How big is it? It's... How much does it displace? It looks pretty big. Okay, Uh, so it's pretty big. It displaces a lot. (laughs) A reasonable amount. It displaces a lot. In fact, I'm trying to... Okay, so uh, on board the 282 foot, so 80 metres long. Oh. Which is pretty big. Yeah. It's decent. It, uh, okay, Lyle. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, it's all right. Yeah, but basically, so this ship, it's called, well, it's built by a company called the Yara, um, and they are actually transporters of mineral fertilizer between town to towns and whatnot. That's their, okay. that's their gig, is they're mm-hmm. like, they're like taking containers fertil- of fertilizer. Containers of fertilizer all over the place, you know. Is it standard shipping containers or they got their um, own special kind of thing that they put fertilizer in? I believe they have like some bins that then they cover and then they yep. distribute. But anyways, this boat, um, ca- carries ship. a, ship. this ship carries about 3,200 tons of fertilizer. Um, and yes, yeah, so this is what's, crazy about is because they had a boat doing this before that wasn't electric a ship a, a ship they had boat a ship. is a submarine 
Yes. What? A boat is a submarine. Submarine is a boat, a ship is a ship. But... It's smaller but, smaller but, things are boats, but ships are ships. Oh, okay, Come on. Okay, okay. I thought you, you were have, saying, like, you boats have... go underwater. And I'm like, <laughs> are you okay? Now, the only big ships that you call a boat is a submarine. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, this ship yes. <laughs> carries fertilizer around. One of the biggest things is that they were, like, they were saying that during the year, like, they have to do 40,000 trips by diesel trucks per year to, like, power their different ships and whatnot, you know, to fuel them up and to, to get them going. And then as well, like, these massive ships are, like, burning diesel. And That's a lot of truck. That's a that's lot, a lot of, of truckloads of fuel. Truckloads of fuel. Yeah. Okay, so that's actually going to be economically viable. That's right. That's where they're like, okay, how can we approach this economically? It's like, okay, we need to cut this these these truck, you know, these um these d- routes out. We yes. need to cut them out so that we can. They should just go back to sale. Problem and- solved. <laughs> oh, Renewable yeah, with like, energy, with right like there. Three three thousand tons of fertilizer. You know, on, I think I think someone I think someone should um, I think someone should open a transport route from Sydney to Melbourne via sail. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of people who are like you know full on greenies and so forth would be like, yeah, I'll I'll sail down there. I'm, I've got to go to Melbourne, so I'll sail. <laughs> it uh, you know zero carbon footprint, hundred percent renewable energy all the way. Well, I'm going down to Melbourne next month. Don't even have to make lithium batteries. Maybe you should sail. Um, no. <laughs> no, I'm going with like a group of people. That would be terrible. No, it would be having to amazing is what it would be. Well, what if it was weather like this? It would be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're doing uh, this. Is again, as I said before, the first you know operational. Um, it is the the first autonomous container ship, and I guess we'll watch this space. These guys in Norway have found a way to make it economically viable, and it just ha- they just have to like charge it up every time it gets to. Um, basically the end of the day, like, is, cause the routes that it's doing aren't incredibly big. And then, so then they just plug it in and it charges overnight and then it goes out again. So we will see, we will watch this space. Because- so they've got no crew or anything. So they're saving money on wages. They're saving money on fuel. Uh huh. They're spending money on batteries. Uh huh. But they're saving money on crew as well. Yeah. But there's still crew. There still have to be people on the boat. Was autonomous. Yeah, but there's you don't need like, crew if there's autonomous. Yeah, but like, so people have to be doing something. What happens if the autonomous boat crashes? Then that will be a bad day for autonomous vehicles. <laughs> yeah, it would be. In other news, oh, this is. Ooh, I have two interesting stories here, and I don't know what to talk about first. Uh, maybe let's let's talk about our friends in France. So there's a company you might have heard heard of them. They're called Michelin. They make. Oh, yes. Tires, uh-huh. like I a lot have, of them. We have heard of them. like a like a lot of tires. Like yes. they're probably the biggest and most successful tire manufacturer in the world, mm-hmm. and they have now made for the consumer airless tires, which they are releasing. That's cool. And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, airless tires. That means so basically, the the point that this article was making was like, oh, you know, so many tires going to waste, like two hundred and sixty million tires a year from the U.S. alone go into it's waste. Massive. It's huge. So we, what we've done is replace that with airless tires. But okay, like, but then you get airless tires are going into waste. Yeah, because I'm like, and they're going to take up more space because they're not hollow. So in when they go into landfill, yeah, because the biggest problem with tires. Is that they wear out out 
Yes. Not and that doesn't stop if you've got airless tires. No. And if someone comes to you and says, "I've got a tire that doesn't wear out," then don't take it because they are lying. To they you. they are. Well, they it's are not that they're lying to you. It's that if the tire really didn't wear out, it would be so hard that like <laughs> yeah, it'd be like driving on rocks, and it would immediately cause you to crash. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, if you want to go and do donuts somewhere. Then those might be the tires to go with, but that's about all. <laughs> that is, that is about all. But no, these, these tires that they've made, um, it, they're designed using 46% recycled material. Um, and it's made, and they have like how they can make them without air. So they've got this like plastic matrix that runs, you know, throughout the, the tire wall. So if you look at like it, a honeycomb kind of thing or, um, yeah, no, it kind of looks like these zigzag kind of, yeah. Oh, it's, it's a not zigzag honeycomb. It's not honeycomb. It's more like, yeah, this zigzag um, kind of design. And I'm just, I'm the, the big thing I'm wondering though is like, because they've done a bunch of road tests. They're like, oh, yep, these work good. But I'm like, the, the thing about air tires, right, mm-hmm. is that air depletes. Like, so, so you fill it, fill a tire up with air and the tire expands and you put the, your desired amount of pressure, say, you know, maybe 30 PSI mm. in a tire. And then over time that air depletes. But the good thing about air is that it's replaceable. You put more in. You just put more in. Whereas. Yeah, like, this is an interesting if, point. Okay. If what you happens? have zigzag things and they soften over time. Or weaken. Yeah. You can't just pump them up. Like. What happens if you want to go off road and let your tires down? Yeah, that's the other thing. No adjustable pressures. So they've done a bunch of road tests with these, and they've said that oh no, like they're 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 really good and they work well. But is this like you know is this only in the space of commuter vehicles? Because if you want to take your vehicle to a track and let some tire pressure out, if you want to take your vehicle off road and let some tire pressure out, you know how yeah, yeah, how does this yeah, industry? Expand. So, so, okay, but I think with the average um, commuter who's just going backwards and forwards to work, I think it would probably be fine, provided that it doesn't just wear out and suddenly driving around on flat airless tyres because they're like, that's right, got weak over time. And, and this is the thing: it's like, okay, you know, this this saves us, you know, landfill and everything. But then I'm like, okay, it doesn't the, save us landfill. Either the and- tyre wears out. Or the plastic part, you know, within the tire, yeah. this matrix softens, something wears out, and if it takes longer to wear out, well, then you actually have a worse tire to drive on because the harder it needs to be and the worse the ride will be. So what's the compromise here? This is the thing. This article that I'm reading, I think, has been written by people who don't understand vehicles, and they're kind of like, yeah, this is great because it doesn't have air and, it, and it's made from recyclables. But air is, air is a renewable free resource. We do not have a lack yeah. of air. <laughs> you know, right. this is, air is not a problem. That's, <laughs> that's, no, but the big thing is like, oh, tyres ending up in air f- in landfill. That's a problem. But I'm like, how does this stop that? I'm scratching my head. And listeners, 0491064669, maybe if you're mechanically inclined and you have something to say, or maybe you're not mechanically inclined and you have a question, you send us a text message. You know, I want to hear you. How, how is this saving us from landfill? You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Quick announcement that I do need to make. Yesterday, we stated that we were going to have the Attorney General, uh, Michaela, Senator Michaela Cash, 
on for our interview of the day this morning. Unfortunately, she's had to reschedule mm-hmm. um, due to commitments with uh, the government and so forth, and she'll be joining us um, on Monday morning. Yes. So that will be a interview not to be missed. We're going to make it a special feature of The Breakfast Show. We're also going to have uh, Pastor Michael Worker on, mm. who is the Director of Public Relations and Religious Liberty for the Church uh, Adventist Church in Australia, mm. uh, to discuss implications with the new uh, anti-discrimination bill that has been tabled to Parliament this week. Essentially, we've had like... Fantastic guests on the breakfast show before, yes. like all the time. But this is probably the most high-profile high guest we've ever had. It is on the show. It is, yes. which is like definitely something to listen along to. All right, but the the answer for the previous clue was mustard, if you were wondering. And so I hope you guys got your answers in. But now for two hundred points, what was the method of execution for a man who blasphemed the Lord's name with a curse? Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is the number to call for two hundred points. You can win an issue of Sign Magazine or get those points on the board and keep sweeping your way through the the quiz. But again, that question was: What was the method of execution for a man who blasphemed the Lord's name with a curse? I wouldn't want to end up like this person because I'm looking at the answer right here and I'm like, yikes! Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is the number to call. Ah, absolutely. Now, someone's texted through with something that might actually be a solution to the environment in relationship to tyres. Mm-hmm. 3D print the rubber back onto the tyres when they wear out. So, like, retread your tyres by 3D printing it. So just, you know, have a printer at home and it's like, well, my tyres are getting a bit thin, so print some more tread on there. The problem with tyre, and I'm going to be the self-proclaimed tyre expert right now. I know, well, you, uh, you kind of do know a bit I, about tyres. I, I know a bit about tyres, and, and the problem with that is that what it's something that is, needs to be so controlled and that, has, that they put so much labour in is what's called compound. So how actually thick and strong and textured the rubber is and they have when it when they make a tie they have so many different contraptions and mechanisms and checks and everything to make sure that every tie they make is a certain compound so they can control um durability and tire wear and road feel like that's like their they're like the that is the point with tires and that was the point i was making before like if someone told you a tire could last forever please don't put it on your car because it's probably <laughs> yeah, as yeah. hard as a rock and it, because the the longer a tire lasts it's because they've made the compound harder and the harder the compound it is the worse it is to drive on to the yes. point where yeah if it lasted forever it need to be literally made out of steel or rock or rubber that's that hard and would cause you to go yeah, see, 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 my thing is that uh, in my four-wheel drive, I buy soft tyres, so they give me yes. good traction. In my car, I buy hard ones, so they last forever, yeah. but they're lethal, lethal in the wet. Dude, t- well, luckily, I've got an all-wheel drive, yes. so I just chuck whatever. I, I don't need tyres. Whatever you can find. <laughs> whatever you can find goes on there. Okay, let's get more, more serious news. That uh, just proclaimed a new saint. Pope Francis has just canonised uh, Titus Brandsma. Um, so you are, within that faith tradition, now allowed to pray to this particular person? Who is it? Okay, so this was a, he was a Dutchman, um, oh, and he was president of the Catholic University at Nijmegen. Mm-hmm. Uh, my Dutch is not great. <laughs> and uh, he was somebody back in the 1940s when the Netherlands was invaded by Germany, was somebody who stood up against the Nazi regime. He was, he was a bit of a journalist as well. Mm. Um, he encouraged newspapers to not print Nazi propaganda. And as a result of that, he was arrested, uh, initially kept in prisons within the Netherlands, but then sent to Dachau. I've actually been to Dachau, um, a horrific place to be mm. imprisoned if you ever get sent 
ever get sent there. While I was at Dachau, he was used for biological experiments. So Yikes. basically, um, it became a, a lab rat. Um, and he died of a an injection that he had, which was a lethal injection in 1942, um, well, late in the year of 1942. Mm. So he is now the third um, World War II saint mm-hmm. to be proclaimed. Um, Maximilian Kolbe and Edith Stein uh, have both been proclaimed saints and they, of course, died at Auschwitz. Mm. So this is this is interesting because, you know, you kind of look at the checkered history that the Roman Catholic Church has in relationship to the Second World War mm. and support for Nazism. And, you know, we, we, we give the Roman Catholic Church a hard time for that, but you've got to remember that there's a history in the United States where very large segments of the United States in the 1930s were very supportive of Nazism and very high-profile figures. Oof. Something, you know, it's a... It's a it's a portion of history where you've got, you know, the Vatican and the U.S. and other um, organized, you know, other countries like this that were supporting Nazism that they just don't like to remember these days mm. uh, because of where it all ended up. But while we're talking about the United States, we probably should wish all of our American friends a very happy Thanksgiving today. Of course, it is Thanksgiving in the United States. Mm-hmm. It was American Thanksgiving date yesterday in Australia, but. Of course, they're behind us. Yes, that's right. Appropriately. So currently they're being thankful. Yes, so currently they're being thankful. I was speaking to uh, my in-laws this morning Mm -hmm. on the way in. They were heading over for their Thanksgiving meal. And, of course, this celebrates the first Thanksgiving that was a celebration that took place in 1621 in Plymouth, at the Plymouth Settlement. And this was the group of settlers who were celebrating the fact that they had survived the first 12 months. Mm. Because only half of them survived. Yeah, wow. It was pretty hectic. And uh, so that's what they were celebrating. What's interesting about Thanksgiving is that there are, are a couple of other contenders for when this date should be. You see, in Florida, uh, going back to the 1500s, at St. Augustine in Florida, there was a group of Spanish and Native Americans who got together for a joint Thanksgiving mm-hmm. feast and just to hang out and enjoy each other's company, which is, you know, what you do uh, at Thanksgiving time. And so, yeah, that was that, that predated it. And then in 1619 in Berkeley, Virginia, okay, there was Captain John Woodleaf uh, along with 35 settlers who had just arrived from the UK and they also held a Thanksgiving-style type meal uh, to be thankful for surviving their journey from uh, from England at that particular time. So, you know, travelling from England was was not a sure thing back in the day. Why is, like, all these cool, like, people, they're like, oh, we've done something, let's be thankful about it. Why don't we do that when we do something? Why don't yes. we just, like, do something cool and then we're just like, you know what, let's have a, let's have a Thanksgiving dinner. We're all thankful. We need, to, we, need to, we need to make this an Australian thing. Yeah. You know, it's just the most positive holiday that there is because it is a celebration of being thankful. No, but I think we should normalize frequent Thanksgiving dinners based on achievements. Like once a week, once a day well, kind of thing. <laughs> you Lawson, know what? Lawson I actually, just like, no, an Lawson. idea came to my head. An idea came, I do like food. I know you were about yes. to say that. Lawson <laughs> likes food. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. But an idea just came to my head. Yes. What if we had a time of Thanksgiving 
maybe to God once a week where we all got together. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, and we're thankful to him and then, like, you know, spent time listening to someone preach then, like... Have a Thanksgiving meal. Had food afterwards and then spent time together. We could even, you know, continue Take daily... time off in, work. In, in, ...in prayer and the Apostles' Doctrine and... Yeah, that's right. ...and sharing of food. Yeah. Breaking of bread. Take time off work, you know... Don't spend anything. Let others work. Uh, let others not work too. What? I, mean, I think I've, I think I'm onto something. <laughs> I think you might be onto something. <laughs> yeah, you know the government's actually kind of stingy when you think about the fact that God gave us a weekly Thanksgiving and the government only gave us an annual one. Well, here in Australia we don't have a uh, an official Thanksgiving. That That's right. I'm really familiar with anyway. But we should. We imported Halloween from the United States. Yes, yeah, Halloween's a lame. Of death. <laughs> This is a celebration of death. Who wants that? Thanksgiving is so much better. Okay, a couple of other interesting things about the first Thanksgiving. There was no turkey. They oh, ate they were they, vegetarians. They ate venison, oh, okay. onions, beans, lettuce, spinach, cabbage, carrots, and peas. Okay, so they weren't vegetarian. But... No, they weren't vegetarian. <laughs> they had venison. Um, and, of course, the history of Thanksgiving, that it became, came about by a proclamation by President Washington in 1789, but it wasn't an annual festival until Lincoln made it an annual festival um, during the Civil War. From 1939 to 1942, the date was changed by FDR and it became the second to last Thursday in November. Mm. But that was... Nobody really liked it, and so nobody kind of did it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Welcome back, everybody. We are glad you're joining us here on The Breakfast Show, uh, 87.6, 87.8, or 88. Joining us on the phone right now is our resident historian for Faith FM Breakfast Show, Eliza Southwell. Eliza, welcome to the show. Good morning, Mark. Great to be here. Okay, so we've been talking this year about great Australians or significant Australians and particularly looking at their faith, their, their, their religious background and so forth. Who is it that we're going to be talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about a governor of New South Wales, Lachlan Macquarie. Now, you might be familiar with his name from history or you might have heard of Lake Macquarie or... Um, or there, or Macquarie, the Macquarie University, Bank. Macquarie, Macquarie University. There are all sorts of places named after him, even a whole city um, in New South Wales, Port Macquarie. And so one of the really interesting things about this governor is that um, he, well, he, he was the one that we can thank for all tracks on Australia, keeping to the left. Um, he formally adopted the name Australia for the continent. No one had used that name formally before. Um, but he also um, did a lot to challenge the power structures of society in Australia. Famously, he was very favourable um, towards com- um, the convicts and wanted them to rise up in society and find their, their dignity and their place in society. Um, but what a lot of people don't know about Lachlan Macquarie is that he and his wife Elizabeth were both committed Bible readers um, and his faith was really central to everything he was and everything he did as governor of New South Wales. So the kind of period we're talking about um, at the moment is very early on, back in the days when um, all governors of New South Wales were either Navy captains or admirals or um, 
lost to Macquarie was in, was in the army. So this is 1810 to 1822, 21. So this is interesting. There's two aspects here that, um, that, that I really want to focus in on that you've just mentioned. One is that he really focused on the convicts, you know, rising up and becoming, you know, basically good, sane, sober, moral citizens mm. and be- building a, building a great colony here as a result of that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the other thing is his faith. Now, when I look at his origins, you know, he's born on this tiny island on the, mm. you know, the rugged west coast of Scotland. Um, yeah. it, it seems that he's somebody who has come from relative obscurity. And would this have impacted, I'm wondering, his attitude towards the convicts? That's, that's an interesting question. So, yes, he was raised in poverty in Scotland. Um, he was closely related to Scottish tribesmen on his mother's side and his father's side. And his father died when he was 14 and he enlisted in the army then. Um, I think that would certainly have, have played a significant role in his treatment of Aboriginal tribes uh, when he arrived in Sydney. I'm not sure about his treatment towards convicts. I think that was um, much more... We, we have a copy of Lachlan and Elizabeth McGlory's family book of common prayer. And in that Book of Common Prayer, there's underlined, well, there are a lot of things underlined, but one of the things that is underlined is um, God's forgiveness and um, hope that all men should come to repentance. Mm. Um, and I think that's more, certainly a much clearer um, explanation of, of Lachlan Macquarie's attitude toward convict, which was a very unusual attitude at the time. And... Certainly, he faced a lot of opposition from powerful people, including the the, um, the chief chaplain of the colony, Samuel Marsden. Indeed. And, you know, once again, just looking at uh, his origins and where he came from. So he's born on this little island called Olva, which is off the island of Mull. Mm. The other island that is off the island of Mull is the off- island of Iona. And this is where his ancestors, really? of course, were born, yes. Uh, sorry, not we're born, we're buried. And so when you consider the, you know, the island of Iona, I mean, this is anybody who knows anything about the history of the mm. church in the wilderness, this, this, this plays a central role. It's a tiny rock, basically, that <laughs> built, where they built a missionary college that rocked the world. I mean, they sent missionaries right out across Europe mm. from this um, mm. missionary centre. And so you can understand why he comes from, you know, he comes from very devout Christian stock. He comes from yeah. a line of Scottish people who, uh, you know, obviously by the time you come down to the 1700s, the later 1700s mm-hmm. when in Macquarie's time, the church in the in the wilderness has long gone. But, you know, you've got a history of things like, say, for instance, Sabbath keeping that lasted through mm. until the 16th century as a result of the witness <laughs> from the island of Iona. And so, you know, mm. this was this was a place where they where they studied the Bible, they translated the Bible, they made copies of the Bible. So mm-hmm. it gives us a little bit of, you know, you look at his background, you can see that he's got a great background and a great heritage for somebody mm. believing in the Bible, believing in the power of forgiveness and redemption. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I've got sort and of certainly. carried away there because, <laughs> you know, when you start to talk yeah. about Iona and mm-hmm. um, th- that's, a, that's a whole area of history that I love to study. Yes, I'll have to fight hard not to get sidetracked on that as well. Maybe another day. Yes, um, indeed. But uh, Macquarie was certainly sent to Sydney to instill law and order. He was sent to Sydney just after Governor Bly was thrown out during the Rum Rebellion. 
Um, but it was a very Christian kind of law and order that Macquarie had in mind, um, very much founded in the teachings of Jesus. Um, for example, when he arrived, he um, denounced the prevailing habit of cohabiting without marriage. Um, constables were directed to enforce laws against um, breaking Sunday, laws to make sure that, that you didn't work on Sunday. Um, he introduced regular church parades on Sunday that, that involved um, convicts and people in government employment. Um, he tried to ban the import of alcohol. He oh, couldn't quite wow. manage that. Um, That's sensational. I mean, you've just had a rum yeah. rebellion. Rum has been right. the currency of the colony, and he's like, yeah. we're going to ban alcohol. We're going to have no alcohol at all. We're going to have mm-hmm. a dry colony. Mm-hmm. This guy's my hero yeah. all of a sudden. I had <laughs> no idea. I had no idea. The new currency. Yeah, so guys, you might have heard of the holy dollar. Um, it, was, it was a coin that was actually... Spanish currency, and so Lachlan Macquarie imported ten thousand pounds worth of the Spanish currency into Australia, and he got one of the convicts who had been sent to Australia for forgery to punch the holes out of the middle of the coins and to rebrand them as Australian coins. And so the the holy dollar with with the hole in the middle of it was um, was I think five shillings, and then the dump was was a smaller denomination. So he introduced this currency as in, in the hope that maybe people will stop trading in rum now. But um, he didn't quite manage that, but he did manage to reduce the number of pubs relating the industry. That's a familiar trick, isn't it? Um, and he reduced the number of pubs in Sydney by over 70%, um, which is astounding, really. Um, London saw New South Wales as basically a dumping ground for convicts, but Macquarie had a vision for Sydney as a successful city that kept its own integrity, that offered um, not just punishment for convicts, but but reconciliation back into society Mm. and a renewal. My understanding is that the currency that he created from Spanish coins, you, you punched the middle out of it and you had the outside, which was worth a certain amount, the inside that was worth a, a less amount. But yeah. then at one stage, my understanding was that those um, outside pieces were occasionally cut up into smaller increments like to create small increments of currency again and it came, became a rather uh, roughshod currency there for a while. Coin flipping was... Um, was common throughout Europe and certainly in Australia because the coins were made of pure silver or they were made of valuable metals. And so if you shaved the side off the coin, you could end up with quite a lot of shavings from coins and you could melt it down and you could sell it on. And so it was a common practice, um, very much illegal. And, you know, woe betide the one who was caught doing that, they might be sent to Australia. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but yes, certainly that kind of thing would have would have been done to the holy dollar as well. Mm, indeed. Okay, so he's got he's he's basically come down here, and he is dealing with I guess a population. You know, you've got your military population which have you know mm-hmm. they've had the Rumba Rebellion. These guys are you know heavy alcoholics. Um, so he's dealing with the alcoholism on one side, and then on the other side, he's got a bunch of criminals that have come from you know mm-hmm. the lower levels of society. Um, right. and he's going to somehow turn alcoholic soldiers 
and uh, the dregs of society into what we have today, which is one of the greatest international cities in the world. Right. Yes, that was the idea. <laughs> it was a bit optimistic, wasn't it? But um, Macquarie was was quite. He'd been in the army since he was fourteen. He had a strong sense of authority and hierarchy. He was he expected. He was used to people. You know, he would give the command, and people would say, "Well, how high do I jump?" Um, and so he um, he found that the power of the army over Australian society was not as difficult as as he, as you might suppose. Um, the army still obeyed orders. He brought his own um, his own regiments to Australia as well that he he'd worked with in India, and um, so the army wasn't such a problem. What was more of a problem were the a group that were called the exclusives. They'd never been convicts. They they weren't descended from convicts. They thought they were they were better stuff than that. The exclusives um, had developed their own exclusive society within Sydney society. These were uh, the rich or or just the well off who had who disapproved of of the convicts and the ex convicts, and they were really filled with a lot of hypocrisy against um, the emancipists or the emancipated convicts. Um, the exclusives thought that you know, we're, we're better than them because we were never convicted. But Lachlan Macquarie knows, uh, knew that, well, everyone, everywhere has sinned. Everyone's been selfish. Everyone's fallen short of God's standards. So whether you're convicted of it or whether the law thought your sin was, was too small to worry about, we're all guilty. And so Lachlan Macquarie tried to um, be... Tried to enact policies that would level society, which the emancipists were very, very worried about. For example, um, he appointed two, on arrival, he appointed two ex-convicts as magistrates in Sydney. Um, he invited, he invited ex-convicts to dinner with him in high society. This kind of thing had never been done before. Um, Lachlan Macquarie freed, uh, 1600 convicts during his 10 years. His predecessors freed hardly any. Um, and the convicts he didn't free, he often um, reduced their sentences. So deep within Macquarie, um, he harbored this, this faith that he held um, before anything else. And this was certainly encouraged by his wife, Elizabeth. But he had this Christianity imbued with the internal themes of atonement and redemption um, as well as with the belief that all human beings are equal in the sight of God. Mm. And so he... Mm. So I was going to say, my understanding was that he also appointed, uh, wasn't Francis Greenway and um, William Redfern, these guys were um, con- ex-convicts as well, uh, which were lo- Macquarie appointments. Mm. What, one of the convicts he appointed straight off the bat was Simeon Lord. Um, and there, there was such... There was such um, outrage at that that the senior chaplain Samuel Marsden refused outright to serve with these emancipists, justices of the peace, and magistrates. Um, another, another really um, interesting 
uh, thing that Macquarie did was that in several years after he uh, first came to Sydney, um, he Macquarie wasn't the kind of Christian that just thought, okay, if I can get convicts sitting in the pews, that's all that we need. Um, we, we just want pew, pew warmers for Christians. No, he took his faith seriously. And um, something that's evidenced by that is that um, the fact that he encouraged uh, and he, in fact, founded the Auxiliary Bible Study of New South Wales. He gave a moving and impassioned speech at its founding in 1817. And he shared the stage with his old enemies. He realized that you know, this this book united a widely diverse group of people and they realized that evangelism was an issue bigger than any of them. And so actually the Auxiliary Bible Society of New South Wales is Australia's oldest institution, um, older even than an institution like the West Bank Bank, which is the second oldest, wow. um, established in 1817. So we see at the foundation of everything Lachlan Macquarie is doing is his desire for reconciliation, his desire for uh, redemption, um, not just so that convicts will behave, um, but that they might be freed inside and out. You mentioned the faith of his wife. You've brought that up a couple of times. She was obviously a, mm-hmm. uh, a significant influence in his life? Absolutely, absolutely. They were very close. Um, they couldn't have children for many years, but I think part of part of um, the, the result of that was that Elizabeth was very involved in, in Lachlan's decision-making as governor. He was, um, he was often swayed by her comments, by her voice of conscience, if you like. Um, and we see that um, Lachlan Macquarie's spirituality really develops and matures after he married Elizabeth. Um, so yes, behind every great man is a great woman, whether it's his wife or his mother. Um, and for Lachlan Macquarie, it was it was definitely his second wife, Elizabeth. What about his um, his influence with the the native Aboriginal population at that time? His his influence with the Aborigines is more mixed. Um, so he with friendly tribes, he set up elders as accountable authorities. Remember. He's in the army. He's used to hierarchy and authority. Um, but with friendly tribes, he also re- he started the practice of returning land to their control. Um, he established a native institution for education in Parramatta in um, 1814. And students were well treated there and educated as highly as anyone else. Um, but with hostile tribes, um, Lachlan Macquarie, of course, again, he was he was an, a military officer, and with hostile tribes, he um, ordered punitive expeditions uh, to meet force with force and instill terror and the rule of law. Um, there's no other way to put that. Um, and there were um, two reports under under these punitive expeditions of um, people being driven over cliffs. Um, so he was he was very much still and authoritarian, and he approached um, hostile Indigenous tribes very much with an air of there is a rule of law issue here that needs to be resolved, and I'm going to resolve it any way I can. Mm. 
So that that heritage is certainly much more mixed. Um, Elizabeth um, had um, a good deal of involvement in the Native institution and ensuring that the quality of education of, of those Aboriginal people was high um, and they were well treated. Um, but yes, we, we have this mixed heritage that's very much a, a, um, a, a signifier of the times. Um, but Lachlan Macquarie, on the one hand, with friendly tribes, was, was full of reconciliation and, and focused on how can I, how can I find a place for you in society? But of course, understandably enough, there were some Aboriginal people and Aboriginal tribes that didn't necessarily want to be pigeonholed, um, and and they often resisted with force. Yeah, and I think that we need to understand that while it in no way excuses his actions, that punitive expeditions were a part of you know mm. British military doctrine of the time. Um, yeah, and that's part of what his training would have been. Doesn't excuse yeah. it in any way, but it is. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see the um, the legacy of this particular individual and yeah, the influence that he has even down to our day, and the influence that his faith has had. Mm. Eliza Southall, thank you so much mm. for joining us here to talk about a fascinating uh, figure from Australian history. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one eight hundred Faith FM.